Welcome to Get Your Damn Flu Shot, a podcast exploring the most pertinent topics in public health today. We're your hosts, Gianna Musalimus, and I'm Diana Rubin. Our mission is to close the gap between public health and the public, one listener at a time. So we're here today. We have a very special guest that we're excited to introduce you all to. Not only is he Diana's father, but we're here today with Jamo Rubin. Hi, Jamo. Thanks for inviting hey, us today. How are you guys? We're great. Thanks uh, for joining, Dad. So yeah, this is kind of a plethora of what happens when you're stuck in the same house as someone for 57 days, but he happens to be a great person to bring onto this platform, and, and we'll tell you why. So for those of you listening, Jamo Rubin is a strategic advisor at Signify Health. For the past eight years, he has focused on solving healthcare's biggest unaddressed need, which are social determinants of health. So before starting Tav Health, he founded and led Medical Present Value, which is now Experian Health, and PTRX. Prior to his entrepreneurial career, JMO practiced as a cardiac anesthesiologist. He is the current chair of the Texas Biomedical Research Institute that is currently helping test out vaccines and therapies for COVID. He works with former HHS Secretary Governor Mike Levitt and former Assistant Secretary of HHS Karen DeSalvo on a national alliance focused on the social determinants of health. So that's his formal background. To me, informally, he's just dad or sometimes a pain in the ass, either one. But he's awesome. For those of you who know JMO, which I guess from now on, from a professional standpoint, I'll call him that for the sake of this interview. But for those of you who do know JMO, he is the definition of a subject matter expert in this field, which is why so many of my friends and a lot of our family have been reaching out to see kind of his reaction to what's going on right now with COVID-19. He has a lot of really interesting insights, and we're excited that he has come on here today to talk about them. So, Jamo, I know that you've been really following COVID for a while. You've really been one of the early adapters in this news cycle. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about how you've seen COVID unfold in the last month or so? Well, right before all of this broke, to the country at large in in kind of March, I was watching this unfold in early January. These early stories in Wuhan of a pulmonary viral infection that might be spreading from person to person, it had a lot of alarm bells going off in folks that had watched SARS and MERS and some of these pandemic-like viruses. As Gianna mentioned, I've been part of the team out of Texas Biomedical Research Institute, which worked on the Ebola vaccine worked on the hep C vaccine. So we're, we're kind of in that circle of institutions that the NIH supports around the country to do this work. Well, you know, January, I began to notice that Wuhan was a dangerous place. And when the Chinese did that lockdown, that's when I knew we were in for trouble. Wuhan is a city that's larger than New York, It's got a very international presence. People are flying in and out all the time. And when these kind of pandemics start, even back in 1918, 
people were moving around the world, but they were moving around in ships. Now they're moving around in planes. And the in-between points when they're going from A to B is yet another infectious point. And my hunch was, and I'm not alone in this, that we were going to see this thing spread. I was thinking in January that it would be a good idea for companies around the United States to begin to think about what would happen if the economy stopped. And it was even back in January that was like an unthinkable idea. Yeah, I mean, completely. I remember even thinking you were being kind of an alarmist, telling us to stock up on cans of black beans in early January. It was a little bit alarmist. And the people that I was talking to were in a very rare minority. It's really complicated because when it's early, you feel like you're an alarmist. And after it happens, you feel like you didn't do enough mm-hmm. about even doing the mental thought experiments of what would happen to transportation, education, jobs, schools, hospitals, if this thing came to the United States. Right. I feel like you have had this kind of personal reaction to COVID and then also your professional reaction. And part of that is being a physician, a scientist in the healthcare industry, a businessman, but there's this whole other side with your area and social determinants of health that kind of speaks largely to the idea that social needs have been neglected and underserved for so long. And I think that that's kind of a larger commentary on our public health system as a whole. Why do you think public health right now is probably more important than ever before? Public health right now is the field. You guys are going to become some of the most valuable, important decision makers in global society over the next decade. Everybody knew public health was important, but it sat sometimes in the shadows. When a modern pandemic hits and business is brought to its knees, everything is brought to its knees. And what you're seeing in a lot of these employers, just to come at this from one angle, not the only angle, is you know in the United States, almost uniquely, health insurance is sponsored by employers. What employers have had to do within their benefit plans is make decisions about what what they will and won't pay for. That willingness and ability to fund got very thin as you got into the world of mental health and got almost non-existent when you got into the world of social services. In employers, that's where they drew the line. In the world of social services and public health, besides vaccinations and things like that, was left to another source of taxpayers. You know, it was up to the city to make sure that there was chlorine in the water. It was up to the city to make sure that schools required students to have vaccinations before they'd let them in. It was just, it was just a different area. That's such a great point. You know, for a while, public health sat in this tiny little corner of this small government office in some local building and was the city's problem. All of a sudden, COVID-19 happens and public health is everybody's problem. Absolutely. Now, you have employers that can't get their employees back into the factory. And why are they having problems? Testing is one. 
But even if you are able to test at will, the next question is, what do I do with my employees that are testing positive that can't come in? Mm -hmm. Well, public health knows you pull on that thread and it takes you right back to the family and the system in which these people live when they leave work. Now employers have quickly realized that if they're not part of helping stabilize the family environment where these people live, they're not going to be able to come back to work. And if the employers can't help get that done, the employees can't get back to work, the employer can't make things that we need to buy, and the employee can't make money to pay their bills. So what has happened in a matter of days is that the world of social determinants of health and more broadly public health has been brought right in to the world's biggest capitalist economy, which was unthinkable six weeks ago, that public health would now be a necessary acknowledged cog to running competitive businesses. And that's why public health on an economic perspective is on a new world stage. I think that's a great commentary on public health. That being said, it's also not easy to think about moving forward. And I know Gianna had had a question for you about that. So, JMO, in the midst of this pandemic, I think everybody is kind of over the quarantine and really looking forward to next steps. Everyone's kind of hoping for a light at the end of the tunnel. Right, which is not easy to do, especially when we are getting all different, not only kinds of information, but different tones of information. It's as if we are expected to speak a new language every week. The president himself has kind of gone from dismissing the virus, and then the next week he'll recognize it, but kind of downplay this risk. And then he'll focus on the economy. And, and then all of a sudden, we have a huge war ahead of us. And, and so it's been really tricky to navigate. This has been such an emotional roller coaster, and that roller coaster has been driven, steered, led by the highest office. And it's caused a lot of frustration. Everyone's all over the place, and those working really hard to help our country, I'm sure, are very frustrated. And if you could kind of speak to that frustration. Sure. It's natural for the country and the world to feel like this. This is scary. The disease itself is scary. You know, will I die? Will my loved ones die? The disease has taken away livelihood from hundreds of millions of people. So the anxiety and the stress over the ability to live is also mixed into this. And then there's, you know, human beings have mental biases that can be overwhelming. We are in search of an answer when there's overwhelming ambiguity. We grab onto things in hope that they're right. That's a great point. What do you think are the next steps now? Well, here's what we know and what we don't know. I think there's an ethical situation that we're going to have to wrestle with as a country. And there are science questions Mm -hmm. that you're not going to wrestle with, but we have to acknowledge. The science questions I'd tell you that we need to wrestle with are testing, treatment, and prevention. And all these are going to be answered with science. They are not going to be answered with inferences. We think something is right. Let's go do it. Or with guesses. I have no idea, but I heard that. So go try and swallow Clorox. Right. 
these kinds of things that are guesses aren't helpful when your audience is scared and looking for a way out. That's one reason that somebody like Cuomo, who's constantly trying to be transparent, in part about being transparent in a fluid situation, is that a lot of the information is ambiguous. And the honest acknowledgement of the ambiguity is a big part of crisis communication. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the science piece, and then I'll talk about the ethical piece. Here's what we know and what we don't know about the science of COVID. Testing. There are two kinds of tests that we're looking at right now. One is to identify people that are actively infected. And this is the infamous nose swab, soon to be saliva test that we've heard about. And that test is looking for actual particles of the virus. It's like looking for and seeing a robber that is in your home. I see you, therefore you are real. That's what the nasal swab is. It's an active infection. That nasal swab or saliva test has been validated by folks like the FDA and their counterparts around the world, and it works. The problem was that by the time we had a validated test, we didn't have enough of them. But that test of, is the robber in my house? Is that infection active? But it doesn't tell you if you've been infected before and you now have immunity. That's the blood test. This is where the wheels begin to come off the bus. There is currently no validated blood test to prove that you have immunity from COVID, period, full stop. Let me say that again. Can we repeat that? (laughs) There is no currently validated blood test that can confirm at a level of accuracy that you need to have when you're testing 5 billion people who has had the infection and is free to roam about the cabin and who is not. And one of the very dangerous things about COVID that makes it not like the flu is that so many people are infected and asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. When you have the flu, you are sick as a dog. There's no question who has the flu. When you have COVID, you have no idea if you're sick for most people, but you're spreading it to folks that are at risk like me or my mother, who's almost 90. And so, you know, people walking around the neighborhood doing whatever they want to do feel great. And my mom just died. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between influenza and COVID when people say, oh, it's really no worse than the flu. They're wrong. So we will soon get a blood test out that can accurately identify people that have an immunity, not to any coronavirus, which is one of the problems with the current tests. We don't know if it's detecting that you've been exposed to a coronavirus that's not COVID, Mm-hmm. That would come back positive, and that would be called a false positive. It, it's it's interesting that you say this because I feel like I do know a lot of people who have gotten this antibody test, and for a lot of them, it has come back positive, and that's kind of created this new wave of hysteria. Well, why is it so important to make sure that this test is accurate? Well, it really boils down to math, and until you have a test that can identify who really has and really hasn't developed immunity, there's too high of a chance that I'll give you the wrong answer. So with, again, with COVID that have such a high incidence of asymptomatic infection, this is the problem. 
And until the blood tests are validated by the FDA and are sensitive and specific enough to be right almost always, we should not rely on them in these early days to make decisions about who can and can't be around other people. We're not ready. Yeah. That test well, is what is your advice to people who don't know how or where to be updated on the science part of this or the math part of this? Yep. I've got an easy rule of thumb. Okay. Until you hear our favorite doctor, Tony Fauci, tell the world that we have a validated blood test, you should assume that you've never been infected and behave that way. That's the safest position that you can be in. So just turn on your notifications for Fauci. Yep. On that note, I don't know if you've heard, there's there's a developing school of thought and an argument that kind of plays into this idea of reopening the country, letting the virus run rampant through our population and allowing our population to naturally acquire herd immunity. Amongst our age group, this sounds like a great idea. Go outside and let us acquire herd immunity reopen the economy. So maybe it would be important to speak about what herd immunity is. So herd immunity is the idea that enough people in the population have gotten sick and therefore it cannot spread to the point where we all need to be indoors and staying inside. So enough of our population has acquired immunity that protects the rest of the population. That's what we see with getting your flu vaccination. If enough of us get a flu vaccination, you know, we won't have a pandemic with the flu running rampant during flu season. And it's meant to protect those who are either autoimmune compromised or have leukemia and can't have their measles and mumps to protect a very small percentage of the population, but it will not work if there are too many people that are unvaccinated. Totally. So along that note, you know, now there's an argument that's in favor of allowing the natural progression of the virus to acquire. Well, I think that's right where, JMO, you were going about to speak to the ethical part of this. Right. So this, this concept of herd immunity is central to how all species deal with this common interplay between viruses and bacteria and who wins and who loses. Measles is the great example that people often use that in the 30s, the epidemiologists began to notice that when there were clusters of measles in communities that a lot of the other kids didn't get sick. But it wasn't until the 60s when a vaccine was developed that they could really immunize enough people at large that the world kind of developed a herd immunity to that. We've seen that in smallpox and hepatitis and a lot of other diseases. The reason they call the COVID-19 virus novel is because no human being on the planet has ever been exposed to it. It's new. It's novel. Mm -hmm. And the amount of people that have to have immunity to a pathogen like coronavirus is very high before the coronavirus can't find anybody to infect. And it just kind of becomes something that looks a lot more like the flu. The ethical issue, John, is is really just what you outlined. Like, how do we get everybody back to work? The world can't not work. There has to be some interplay here between the, the wheels of the economy spinning that supports the population that we have. And it 
It's true. You know, and then you get into these questions of, but what is a life worth? And you start putting dollar prices on lives, or in some countries, you can't even put a dollar price on a life. These are questions for the ages about what sacrifices we make as individuals and societies in terms of protecting others. So we know there's that there's this tension and this interplay between, no, we can't stay at home forever. We have to begin to go back to work. We need to rely on science to show us the stair-step way to come back into this thing. And do we come back in in some kind of plan that's predicated on testing, treatment, and prevention? Or should we just let all the young people out, get back to work, let them get infected and create herd immunity? I suppose that's one way to do it. I think the outcome of that would be that because this virus is so contagious, I think at least two things would happen. Problem number one is that the young, air quote people, there aren't enough of them that even if you were all infected, would create herd immunity. Because the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s are still susceptible. And what happens with this disease is that when people get sick, the kind of treatment that they require is at a scale that our current healthcare system in the United States isn't set up to respond to. That means in certain communities that are having outbreaks, when every ICU bed in City X is treating a COVID patient on dialysis or on a ventilator. So the herd immunity argument around just let the young people out, what we know about herd immunity is it it wouldn't be enough. Mm -hmm. I think what we're going to see over the next probably few years is that there will be hotspots. And these hotspots will move around the country, around the world, and we'll end up having lockdowns geographically instead of in a country. You know, a country is an abstract idea and a virus doesn't understand what a country is. So we'll, we'll begin to kind of respond to the virus by where it is instead of who we think we are and try to contain hotspots and let the economy in the other parts of the world function more normally, better supply chains, protecting healthcare systems, letting reserves of resources get built up. I think we are going to see that. But again, I would caution those that think you can get sick and not worry about it. A, we're not really sure how many young people are going to end up having problems that they don't know about yet. This coronavirus is pretty nasty. We're now beginning to see strokes We're now beginning to see changes in heart function, changes in kidney function that are happening to asymptomatic people. How do we get over this thing and everybody go back to work and make it November 2019? You have to be able to identify anybody that is actively infected or that has immunity, testing. If somebody gets sick, you have to be able to treat them with medications that have a high likelihood of them being able to recover, treatment. Prevention we have to have a vaccine. And when you have those three things, that's it. COVID's over. We'll be much better prepared to respond to the next one. And there will be a next one. When will we have those three things? So we've talked about testing. And I I think, you know, in the coming quarters, there's a bunch of companies working on real tests that are going through real scientific validation processes. I believe we're going to get that done. It just may take quarters instead of days. On the therapy and vaccine side, this is where it gets really tricky. 
creating vaccines has been the bane of biomedical infectious disease research forever. You know, the Ebola vaccine, which was a world record and took them four years. And we did a lot of that work at Texas Biomed to test these vaccines. And now in the outbreak in the Congo, because of that drug, new infections is almost zero. So vaccines take a long time to develop. And the reason they take a long time to develop is that the proposition of a vaccine is that you're going to inject hundreds of millions, but in this case, billions of people that are otherwise healthy with something that's going to create a response as though they've been infected. It's a head fake, right? And it teaches the body to say, hey, if you see anything that looks like me, this is really bad, attack me. First of all, you have to have a, an animal model whose immune system is so similar to a human beings that you can begin to test different ideas. There isn't one today for coronavirus. So everything the audience hears today about, I've got a vaccine, he's got a vaccine, we're going to have a vaccine by the summer. No, they may be on to great ideas, but it's probably not going to happen. There's nothing to test it in. And there's no way the FDA or any international counterpart is going to approve an untested vaccine to give to billions of people without animal testing. So this is really dangerous stuff. And becomes a huge public health problem because that's how all of this distrust with vaccinations can occur. Absolutely. That's a great point. So I believe the chances are pretty good we're going to have a vaccine. But again, back to Fauci, what's he telling us? It's going to take a year to year and a half. He's right. And even that will be fast. And I encourage everybody in the audience, let the facts tell us where to go. This is science. It can't be based on guesses. We think hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are great. Good. But go prove it before you tell everybody that it's a great idea. You have a 40x increase in prescription of these drugs so that people that have lupus and other conditions that really need them, they can't even get these drugs now. And now there's tests that are coming out that say people that are taking hydroxychloroquine for COVID are having heart problems. They're having this, you know, until science can prove what is effective and what is not, we should be very weary of these ideas. We're all scared. We're all nervous, but we've got to let Tony Fauci and his colleagues around the world do their job. So you and I, you and I were on a walk the other day and a neighbor from across the street said to us, don't worry, this will all be over very soon. What would you say back to that neighbor? I hope so, but I don't think so. From the scientific community, we don't have an animal model. We have a lot of hopeful candidates for vaccines. We got work to do. From a therapy perspective, hydroxychloroquine might be a strikeout. Remdesivir, which had high hopes, might be a strikeout. I mean, this is a virus. We haven't been able to cure the common cold. Same problem. So just sit tight and continue. Well, I mean, now we get back to the ethical situation. On the other hand, you can't have 5 billion people stay at home forever. And so we're, we're going to face changes in behavior. 
I don't know how long it's going to be until you go to a grocery store where the world doesn't have a mask on, not because somebody told them to, but because they put it on. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to change the way they behave. For people who COVID hasn't hit their community, if they're not scared, what problems does that create? Well, the problems it creates is it's a very attractive community for the virus. That's what the virus is looking for. Lots of social interaction. I mean, let's flip this around. If I was a virus, where would I go? I would go to people that are hanging out a lot together, where there's a lot of young people that won't know they're sick, so I can get to vulnerable people and get them super sick and make tons of virus and kill people. So, you know, the southern states of, of the U.S. appear to be late in terms of exposure. Now, that may be, you know, this is just conjecture. It may be because there weren't a lot of people from Wuhan that were traveling to Alabama, but they'll get there. And when they get there, the communities have kind of gotten fatigued. They're back to a little bit more of the normal. And the virus is like, game on. This is exactly what I've been looking for. And that's the fear that a lot of people have. You've heard about this too, either new communities that have had no exposure and they let their guard down or communities that retracted and went back out too soon with too little protection. And there's what they're calling a second wave. And I think you're going to see that. That's what happened in the Spanish flu. Remember, when people say the Spanish flu, the year they say is 1918, when somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died from something that looks just like coronavirus. They don't talk about 1917, the year before, when that same virus was racing around the globe and it got a whole bunch of people sick but not a lot of people died. And then it mutated and came back the next fall, which is what the CDC said last week before Trump told them not to say that anymore. And so there's a lot of folks in epidemiology that are worried. This is not like the the basketball season of 2019 and 20, and then the teams change and now it's basketball season 2020-21. This virus doesn't understand years. Does it understand um, seasons? Well, we don't know if it understands seasons. So far, it appears that warmth and humidity, which some viruses don't like, isn't happening with coronavirus. You look in the southern, it's not helping. It may, but it may not. But I'm afraid that we're going to see that this isn't just going to magically end this summer or this fall. And I'm afraid we're going to see that it's going to pick back up in a year, maybe worse than when it started. That's one of the concerns that the CDC has right now. I know that you and I have discussed a really interesting part of this new era of healthcare and and value-based care is the strategic alliances of public and private partnerships. And I know for you with Signify Health, that was just the case. I remember right when all of this was going down, we turned on the news, one of Trump's first press conferences up there with CVS, Walmart, Walgreens, Target was Signify. What has that been like for you to be on a team that's receiving calls from the White House and trying to strategically flatten this curve and help with testing and adjust quickly the entire business model to help with COVID-19? Well, anytime you get a call from the White House, it's bizarre. Hard to imagine that You're being asked to participate at that level and have an impact on 300 plus million people. 
But to be pulled into that was validation that this idea we had at Tab Health that was acquired by Signify a year ago, our whole thesis in that company was around the social determinants of health and what we were trying to build and ultimately did was connect the world of social services to the world of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And for the audience, the definition of that, you know, so these social services is anything from food banks to churches that, you know, help folks that are socially isolated have a place to go on Tuesday nights, or they give them rides to the doctors or respite care or autism services or any number of social services that have typically been beyond the scope of what healthcare is delivered. And all of these resources that are out there, how do you connect them into the world of healthcare? That was what our business was about. The world of healthcare, as I know you guys know, and some of the folks in the audience know, is changing. Probably the biggest business model change in American history. So we've been watching this shift happen for the last eight years. Most of the reasons that these people are getting sick and not getting well actually has nothing to do with the doctor. It has a lot more to do with what happens within their family and their family systems. We were acquired by Signify to help them do that. And then COVID came. So all of a sudden, Signify had this capability to go into the home and evaluate non-clinical needs and solve them with social services. So have non-clinical needs been a part of COVID? Absolutely. When you're told to quarantine at home and you can't work and you have no income and you're living from paycheck to paycheck, that is all non-clinical. And when you can't solve those non-clinical problems, you end up in the emergency room. So yes, absolutely. And COVID was just a gallon of gasoline thrown on this fire that they lit. And all of these problems are coming out now. And that's why the White House called us. Can you help us not only use Signify's platform to do more testing and get in front of more Medicare patients, but when you find problems with them that are not clinical, food, water, shelter, whatever, can you help solve those? We were in a very unique position. So our next question, what has been the hardest thing from a healthcare expert standpoint to watch unfold throughout this pandemic? I think the hardest thing to watch has been the assault on science. This isn't new to the world of infectious disease research. It's not new to the world of therapies and vaccines, and it's not new to the world of public health. But we have a narrative going on today based, you know, on one hand, understandably based on fear around the unknown, but in the political environment today, and this isn't just the U.S., but around the world, science is under assault. It's inconvenient. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. And that's been the most frustrating thing is to have inferences and guesses drive decision-making instead of facts. Yep. It's a great point. I mean, especially from the leader of the free world and all of our governors. I know some have been really rooted in the facts, but I think one of the hardest things for me to (laughs) watch is the authority that people have to give information that is not rooted in the facts. Right. Or say that you don't know. Have the courage and honesty to say, 
We don't know the answer to that question. It's super scary that we don't know right. the answer to that question, but that's the truth. Yeah. So then rooted in the facts, if you could give the entire country one piece of advice, what would that be? Behave as if you have not been infected and help everybody figure out what trade-offs we need to make to begin to get back to work. What does that mean to behave as though you have not been infected? Because that that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Well, I mean, look, magically, if everybody was on an island, no one would get infected and we would have no problems. Again, that's magic. So how close can you get to that? And don't kid yourself. One drink with the neighbor in their house is a drink with everybody that neighbors come in contact with in the last fill in the blank. How many days is it? Well, the answer is we don't know. It's not six or 12. We have no idea. Pretend it's 30. This virus is so infectious that you should be scared of it. And if you're not scared of it, those that you love are scared of it. And Dinah, you can tell the audience how much I've been telling you that. You know, behave as if you've not been infected Mm-hmm. And think about the trade-offs that you and your community needs to make and are willing to make to get back to work because we can't do both. Yeah. I love that trending hashtag, I stay home for. And it kind of is a constant reminder, who are you staying home for? If right. not for love yourself, that. who are you doing this for? So that kind of brings us to our last question. One of my personal favorites that we like to ask every speaker that comes on is, what has been your favorite snack during quarantine? You probably know the answer to this, Diana, but I don't and our audience doesn't. So, you know, we haven't... I actually don't. I actually don't. I mean, I have a few guesses, but... I mean. Okay, so here's the problem. I mean, my go-to is chocolate, dark chocolate, milk chocolates for sissies. And so that stayed a constant. What's happened is that I'm eating things I never eat in dining. <laughs> That's true. It's like WTF, Dad. You know, you're eating queso. Yeah, or like, when did we start like having a constant supply of Fritos and why does that need to be a thing? You know why? Because I've deprived myself for 40 years (laughs) and Fritos are manna. They're amazing. Why have you no Fritos? I'm lactose intolerant and my favorite snacks have been cereal and ice cream. So I think we're right exactly what I'm talking about. Go (laughs) for it. For those of you who aren't from Texas, you might not get this, but mine's been 100% queso every day, same time, same place. That's been like the one thing getting me through this. So anyways, well, this has been great. JMO, dad, whoever you are, thank you so much for joining us. I know that a lot of people will really, really appreciate what you've gotten on here today to talk about. You guys stay safe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Get Your Damn Flu Shot. So this is the part where I tell you all to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. You can find us on all major host platforms like iTunes and Spotify. But really what we ask of you in a time like this, we need your help. The world needs your help to get the word out there. So don't just listen, share with your family, your friends, and your pets. Send them a link so we can all stay connected. Email us at gydfspodcast at gmail.com to join the conversation. And uh, remember to get your damn flu shots.